Hi, everyone, and welcome to This Much I Know, the Seedcamp podcast with me, your host, Carlos Espinal, bringing you the inside story from founders, investors, and leading tech voices. Tune in to hear from the people who've built businesses and products, scaled globally, failed fantastically, and learned massively. Uh, today, we have a guest that has made a name for himself recently through his amazing newsletter, Exponential View, but who's got, like an iceberg, a very deep core of experience that hopefully he'll be able to share with us today. Thanks for joining us, Azim Azar. Thank you, Carlos. It's great to be here. Today, we're going to start off with uh, your background, and then we're going to work through some of the things that you've accomplished, in- including your time as a founder at Peer Index. And from what I understand from our chat earlier, uh, you're, you were based in Zambia in the mm-hmm. 70s, and you know you were, you were working and your, your, pam- your parents worked in the civil service, and maybe that was the inspiration for your transition to journalism and, and working with The Guardian, The Economist. Maybe you can walk us through that, that early part of your life. Uh, I'd love to do that. Yeah, Zambia in the 1970s was a great place. It was very optimistic. It had been uh, decolonized, had its independence a few years earlier from Britain. Uh, and my parents were working in the, in the civil service. We didn't have a lot of media down in Zambia. So what I had was bits of the newspaper, even as a kid, and a few magazines. Uh, and so you, you, you read what you have. Uh, and that created a love of current affairs. But at the same time, this is the 70s. The, instant, the computing boom was just taking off and our neighbors had an Atari video game console from the late 70s. So I had some early exposure to technology. And by the time I arrived in England in 1980, uh, you know, I knew a little bit about the world. I was only eight, uh, but I also knew a little bit about technology. And those things have carried uh, with me for the rest of, uh, uh, of my life. Excellent. Well, walk us through the early projects that you did in building out the the sites for the Guardian and the Economist. Well, my career started, as you say, at the Guardian. And uh, uh, what had happened at at university, I'd set up with some friends a student newspaper. Uh, We'd been founders, uh, as it were. And when I graduated, the job market didn't really have a place for founders in 1994. We didn't even know the word. But they did see that I'd worked in a student paper hence getting a role at The Guardian. And it was just at the time where the web was was taking off. I mean, Mark Andreessen had released the uh, the Netscape browser uh, and or the Mosaic browser as it was at the time. Uh, and so I had this job covering the tech industry uh, and gadgets and gizmos for The Guardian, but also building their first uh, editorial website, which was uh, a, a tiny little website that published some tech news uh, called GoTo. And I think we launched that in late 1995 or 96. Okay. And so that period of journalism, you know, when you work through not only covering stories of other people, but, you know, some of the other stories that were kind of relevant at the time, early internet, was that the point that you decided that something what eventually became Pyrindex was due to happen or when did the idea for your 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 first sort of startup if you will like major major startup yeah well you know working at uh, the guardian and then the economist between 94 and 98 was really the height of the dot-com bubble uh, and the internet boom actually running up to the bubble so i was exposed to uh, the netscape ipo Uh, i wrote about aol i wrote about yahoo pre-ipo and post-ipo So I had exposure to this idea of founders coming together, raising money and then and then exiting and also just seeing the quality and the enthusiasm and the levels of energy in those early, early years. Uh, And and so when I left um, 
the the economist and and, and so on i i actually sort of set up a company during the the, the dot com bubble um, but one constant theme for me has been about uh, information and quality of information and uh, you know you see me launching lots of media products so at the economist i launched some newspaper pro- you know, some email products and i was constantly interested with this of this idea of how do you find the best most reliable information and it's it's a project that i took with me when i worked at the bbc it's a project that i took with me when i worked at um evi uh, technologies uh, briefly which was acquired by amazon so it's 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 that scratch itch that i want to scratch and so when we get to late the late 2000s 2007 2008 around the time of the global financial crisis i was using blogs and twitter commentary as a way of finding insightful analysis to what as to what was happening in the market and i realized it was quite hard to do in a manual manual way and that's where we had the idea for the company that ultimately became peer index which was there's a lot of smart people out there sharing smart content. How can we find the best, most reliable content in a trustworthy and timely fashion? Uh, and that was a journey that I kicked off in uh, late 2009 with a, with a few uh, colleagues uh, and culminated in, in Peer Index. Now, it's interesting that you were talking about, and I know we're going to cover this when we talk about Exponential View, mm-hmm. about data and the importance of data. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting that the, the genesis behind Peer Index was more about content consumption, sort of qualified content consumption. And in my experience, because I was an early peer index user, Mm. I thought part of it was designed to eventually deal with other sorts of qualifying things, financial services, Mm -hmm. um, risk analysis, Mm -hmm. uh, other things. Walk us through a little bit about the thinking about uh, when you pitched it to to VCs, whether it was just limited to here's this sea of content or whether there was a bigger picture behind it that you now may be applying from 2020. Right. So we, we started somewhere else, as you rightly point out. We started with something called v- views flow. So it was the idea of flowing views to you. And, and in order to make views flow work, which will, uh, involved scanning tens of thousands of, of Twitter feeds and RSS feeds, we had to extract the correct signals. Uh, and we determined that the, the best signals were ones that were less to do about the content in, the, in of itself, but about the, the rate with which the content was diffusing through the network. And the characteristics of the nodes across which the content was diffusing. And so with a guy called Nicola de la Pena, who's a, a machine learning uh, person, we developed an algorithm that we called PEER, P-E-E-R. And it stood for Peer Expertise and Evaluation Ranking. And to simplify it, it was essentially topic-based Google PageRank style algorithm applied to the diffusion of URLs across social networks. And it worked really well. And we used that to power the ranking within Viewsflow. Viewsflow was doing very, very nicely as a product. People really liked it. It was a great way to get a kind of virtual economist. Uh, uh, But back at that time in 2010, raising money in a much, in a pre-seed camp UK internet, essentially, you guys hadn't had your massive impact and the Mm -hmm. angel system wasn't as well organized as as it was. There just weren't as many investors around. And when you go off and take them something that's doing you know, 40,000 DAU growing fast, but it's a content aggregator. Uh, it, it doesn't look that uh, exciting and interesting. So we naturally went off and said, well, listen, we need to pivot this. And what the gem that we had was the peer technology. We had some, you know, applied for some patents and we could see that it could be really useful in other use cases. 
So we pivoted, we shut down Viewsflow, we reconfigured the product roadmap, we went back into the bunker and built and built and built and built out this thing called Peer Index, which is what most people know or uh, know of. We were going to apply this ranking data to all sorts of things, including financial services and so on. And how did that map out? I mean, one of the interesting things whenever you play with data science is interesting correlations. Mm -hmm. How did this thesis around the nodes and which nodes were most referential which works fine for content. Mm -hmm. How did that work with other areas? And what other interesting correlations did you find during that era? Yeah, that's a really good question. So we had a, we had a very, very uh, uh, creative data science team. It was led by Ferenc Hussar, who went on to Balderton and is now at Magic Pony and Twitter, uh, and a couple of other people. Uh, and as we went off and did our, our research in science, we identified that there are, there are, there's a, a problem in when you do network analytics, which is that the winner takes all. So your most powerful node gets lots of the juice and your ability to then discriminate or say anything useful about the, the tail diminishes. And so we found that other things became important. Um, and we, we were able to, for example, predict with reasonable accuracy people's gender or their ages by a combination of the sorts of things they tweeted about, but also the types of other people they hung out with. Because there's this attribute within networks called homophily, uh, which means effectively birds of a feather flock together. Mm -hmm. So if you're a, like you, a charming mid-30s venture capitalist <laughs> in London, uh, you're going to be connected to many more venture capitalists in London. Whereas if you're a 19-year-old emo kid from, uh, you know, from Macclesfield, more of your network is going to look like that. So we were able to apply things like that reasonably early on to derive attributes around uh, about people. Okay. And then what were you able to convince brands? And maybe you, you, it's, yeah. it's long enough now that you can talk about that. But mm -hmm. what did that allow you to do from a biz dev perspective and, and mm -hmm. the credibility behind the data and the correlations you were generating? Yeah. I, I mean, to summarize what, what Peer Index was, and I, we didn't think of it exactly this way at the time, it was a, a marketplace where on the one side we had consumers with varying degrees of influence in, in topics, whether it was CrossFit or, uh, or technology or photography. And on the other hand were brands who wanted to, to be mapped matched to those consumers and we would have a permissioned way of brands working with those consumers. When we started this process, we were uh, looking at building a consumer-first product. In other words, getting you, Carlos, to sign up to Peer Index because you might get better treatment or goodies from, from brands. It had the advantage also for us of helping us get higher quality data. Um, and, and we ran that model for two or three years, and we worked with a bunch of brands like uh, Ford was a good example, or Virgin, um, and, and essentially we would say, here are a hundred people who are relevant to your business and relevant to uh, the, the, the you know, product, your, your products. Um, if you give them something nice, they they will they might we didn't ask you or force you to do it they might just say nice things about you which of course people are inclined to do because treated well you talk about it and um, what we found about that model was that although it was effective for uh, as as campaigns go there were two issues for us from a business model perspective the first is it wasn't recurring revenue it was campaign based revenue so it was a little bit like Groundhog Day the start of every month or every quarter you start at zero and you have to kind of climb that mountain again the, the second was that. A lot of what we were doing was was actually what the 
intermediaries, the ad agencies, the media agencies and the PR agencies wanted to be doing. So we were actually competing with our channel in an unhealthy way. So we went into our second major pivot uh, for, for Peer Index, which was to say, even though we've gone out and aggressively tested and built this kind of direct-to-consumer model, and we launched something called Peer Perks, which was essentially a, a discount site where your discounts relate, depended on your kind of effectively your, the strength of your, your Twitter feed. Um, we, we had much more pickup from large brands and agencies saying, look, we'd rather have good quality data about audiences and therefore use that data in a hundred different ways, whether it was pricing or media buys and so on, than just be forced down the, the, the channel of this um, campaign-based business. We preferred it as well because they were willing to pay us thousands of dollars a month on 12-month or longer contracts. Uh, so we went into a second pivot, which was probably in um, two or three years after we'd, we'd built out this consumer business. It, pivoting is painful, by the way. I mean, it's painful in so many ways. It's painful because of, you know, the people, uh, the people side of things. Uh, it, and uh, most painful for that, actually. And it's painful uh, because you... You go back through that product market fit process, which you as seed camp know really well. But for every entrepreneur, that's always a bit of a brutal experience. Yeah? Mm. So, so we pivoted a second time and, and actually said, look, here's a bunch of data that we are inferring about audiences and this can be helpful. And that's what really started to take off and ultimately led to the acquisition uh, by Brandwatch. Excellent. Walk us through some of the learnings behind the team management and timings uh, regarding these pivots. In, yeah. in effect, if you were to give top three pieces of wisdom mm -hmm. that you learned during that process for yeah. a founder listening to this, what would they be? So I think timing for Peer Index is, is a great lesson. We were a little bit early. The technology wasn't quite ready, so we had to solve some fundamental problems. The social networks were emerging but weren't commonplace, so we had to persuade customers about the value of the social network, then the value of our product. Uh, and the, uh, you know, we had to then also explain to users why it would be useful for, for them. So I feel we were just a little bit early and that, you know, a year, two years later, we, we would have, um, it would have, you know, been, been a smoother ride. And, and, and to note on timing, you know, our original product was really all about the veracity and reputation of news and news sources, which of course is the fake news thing that we're, we're really concerned with, uh, right now. Um, so, so that's the first thing. That's a kind of macro timing. Uh, the second thing is really the importance of, uh, of team. I mean, everyone talks about it, but it really, really is so crucial. And when we did our first pivot from the, the content business to the, the data business, we had a, a real challenge in the sense that I hadn't hired lots of engineers who were designed for data business. And so we had to try, you know, we had to help upskill existing engineers, but we had to really rebuild a new style of engineering culture, which you know, a couple of our engineering leaders did, did, did quite well. Um, so you know, when you pivot, you've also got this issue that sometimes people are not intellectually or skill fungible in an intellectual skills or behavior basis uh, as, as you pivot. So it's something to bear in mind. Um, and the third thing is about, is about action. So our first pivot probably took us about four or four months to decide to do, and our second took slightly less. But I think if you know you have to do it and you have kind of enough sufficient doubts in your belly about 
whether this really is landing, these punches are really landing in the market, then you need to act on it much, much more quickly. And people talk about this truism with, with respect to employees. You know, they say, well, if you think an employee isn't working out, then they, they're not, right? That's the sign they're not working out, so act on it immediately. Um, but I think that can also be ex- extended to some of the key strategic decisions that you make as a founder. If you think you're not in the right market, then be then your gut is telling you something and you're the founder and you're the one who understands and has somehow internalized this um, better than anybody else. Uh, and there should be some sense that you can trust that and act, and act on it faster. Yeah, makes sense. Well, let's fast forward to today. What are you working on uh, at Shipstead Media Group? And uh, walk us through a little bit of what they do. Yeah, so Shipstead is uh, a world-leading operator of online classifieds. Uh, we reach about 200 million users every month in more than 20 markets. We're dominant in uh, you know, Norway and France and, and Sweden and a bunch of other places. Uh, and you know, my role uh, at Shipstead is to help us work with interesting technology and product startups and to really bring innovation uh, back into our platforms, uh, help our product managers improve their roadmaps, improve time to market. Uh, and being a global company in a really exciting space, which is online marketplaces, lets me you know roam into interesting areas like you know, not just new marketplace models, but also AI startups and everything in between. And is this the same time that you felt Exponential View was a good way of, of helping you stay on top of things so that you could then pass it on? Yeah, I mean, Exponential View has been running for, for a year before I joined uh, a joint ship set. It was during the, after the acquisition, and I had spent six years as a founder staring at one spot on the wall, right, which was the, the problem my company was out there to fix. Yeah. Uh, and so having sold the company uh, and working with, with the acquirer, I had an opportunity to just think a bit more broadly. And so I just started sending some links to 20 friends and it's picked up now and I do it alongside the Shipstead work. I mean, it's nice that it, it dovetails uh, very well with what I have to do on my day job, uh, but essentially it's something that I do on the weekends and you know I get up at five in the morning on a Sunday to, to get it finished uh, reliably 92 weeks in a row. Yeah, that's pretty impressive. It takes definitely commitment uh, to, to create any kind of content on a regular basis. Yeah. And the great thing about Exponential View is that you cover a lot of issues uh, that are, you know, some of them which are, were born probably from the peer index era mm-hmm. and realizations you made therein. And we were chatting before we started recording a little bit about the, the nature of how data and artificial intelligence and machine learning are shaping our society. And the question that I asked you was, you know, when you speak to somebody who is in a governance leadership point of view mm. um, and in a role rather, uh, how is it that you would uh, pass on all the things that you've learned and researched over these past few years? You know, we were talking about whether or not tech has a bad rap mm-hmm. or not. Mm-hmm. And maybe you can share your views there. It's like, what, what would you pass on to, to that individual yeah. and, and why 2016? Kind of, ex- kind of exponential leadership uh, qu- uh, question. So first, let me just pitch the URL. Can I do that? Yeah. Is that all right? Yeah, yeah. So it's www.exponentialview.co www.exponentialview.co Whoever owns the .com, sell it to him for cheap, please. <laughs> yes, exactly. I love that .com. Yeah, you know, I think one of the, the observations that, that I made was that, that 2016 has uh, not been a great year for the reputation of some of the most advanced models of, of, of modern technology. So uh, the, the two-sided platform marketplace has come into a, with a bit of a you know, bad reputation with results, you know, with the, the Uber and the delivery stuff around who's actually making making the money and is the work that the drivers and riders get uh you know reasonable quality work and then on the other hand you've got 
you know, Facebook and Twitter dealing with hate speech and fake news uh, or, or perhaps not, not dealing with it. And, and so when I think about uh, some of the issues we, we, we talk about in, in Exponential View, one of my perspectives is, is this, that as software eats the world, our interface to the world, to all of the real resources that we need as humans are mediated by our mobile phones and ultimately by software. And that means that the people who are building the software have tremendous power. And the choices that you make as a product manager in order to ship, that you say, well, I'm not going to support this, or don't worry if the, the ROC curve on this algorithm, on this prediction isn't great, has a direct impact because it ultimately may prevent me from accessing resources that I need to live a, re- a reasonable life. And so now more than ever, tech really matters. And tech leadership uh, matters because it's it's the gateway. It's the gateway. You know, you can't do anything in the world now without having your your mobile phone to hand. Um, and and if, when we when we look at uh, you know tech companies, there are three little issues that I think we don't uh, necessarily think very hard of, particularly when we're in shipping mode, right? So the first is all about externalities. So what are the the the, the the attendant costs that are not priced into the experience that, that a consumer is getting. Um, the second is adjustment costs. So our new business may have a fantastic and vigorous business model. What about what does it do to the impact of the people around around it and how do they adjust? And the third is trolley problems. So you know, trolley problems are essentially uh, you know a, an automated system has to is going to act without human judgment and it's going to make trade-offs and how do those trade-offs get made? So those three things are, you know, they're kind of, they come from my degree of, uh, I did study politics, philosophy and economics, but they're kind of straight from that degree, right? Externalities is from economics, adjustment costs is from politics and trolley problems is from philosophy. Uh, and they're things that tech leaders haven't had to think about, but as, as we are more and more able to build products that control our access to resources and distribute them to a billion people quickly, we're going to have to start to think about them and take them a bit more seriously. So if I pick on some of the decisions that you made during Peer Index, Mm -hmm. would you say that it's easy for a founder to really balance those two things when at the same time you're trying to make ends meet and the campaign comes in that uses your data in a specific way and you're like, well, I'm going to pay the bills for this month. How does, especially early stage startup deal with that whilst they're at the same time developing some really cutting edge tech which then generates data that's yeah. in some cases very personal about individuals. Yeah, it's a it's a complete nightmare. It's really hard, particularly if you're a startup startup founder. And we uh but I th- I think having the first stage uh is uh it's the reverse of fight club, right? You talk about it uh and you say, well, you know, we need you know we have, we need to think about how we do this. Uh, and so in the case of peer index, looking at the data, there are things that you could go off and predict on social network data that you might choose not to predict. Or even if you did predict them, you might choose not to make them available to anybody. So I think that that's one, well, that's one conversation. The second conversation is whether you, uh, is what kind of customer and client base do you, do you work with? And we would have really vigorous arguments about this. I mean, you know, and it wasn't just with the engineering team, it was often with the, with the sales team about whether we should work with a particular client. And there were clients where we 
we didn't, you know, we didn't work with them. We did work with um, a, a drinks brand, an alcohol brand, but we went to quite extreme lengths to age gate uh, the, uh, the, the, the campaign. I think it's a balance. It, re- it is a balance, but the first starting point needs to be the awareness of what is the impact of this going to be. I mean, I'll give you, I'll give you a good example of a company who I think from the outside is doing, is doing this in a, in a good way. It's, um, is City Mapper, right? So, so I think if you hear Asmat speak, he talks about wanting to make cities better and wanting to make them more walkable and, and bring the kind of life and vibrancy to it. Uh, once you establish a higher purpose, to, to that, I think that stands you in quite good stead as you develop your business. Uh, and 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 then on the other hand, you might have as a sort of an extreme, you might have a game, a, a freemium video game that's designed to hook you and get you to pay more money. Uh, I think that that that's one where the higher purpose part perhaps isn't there, and then we start to worry about that the externalities. But I, I appreciate that it's hard, mm. but it's important as well. So if we go to the trolley problem mm-hmm. and having data and algorithms act without human judgment. Mm-hmm. Where do you think the rate of change is driving that deepest in? What are the areas where there's so much momentum that actually it is already a trolley problem in yeah. modern society and in 2017? So, yeah, should we just should we talk about the, what the trolley problem is? Just bring people, yeah. people in, are not with us on that. So, you know, I, I, and we should also play it as well, Carlos. So trolley problem is uh, this sort of philosophical game um, invented by a woman called uh, Philippa Foote. And it's designed to help us un- identify essentially how utilitarian we are. So um, imagine that there is a, a train traveling down some, some tracks and the tracks split. So it can go either go straight or it could go left. And in order to go left, you have to pull a lever, a switch. And you're standing by that switch for whatever reason. You hang out at train railway junctions. Um, and you see the train hurtling down the, 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 part, the, the track. And if it goes straight on, it's going to knock over and kill five people. And you could pull the lever and t- send it down the branch track uh, and that those five won't get killed. But if you do that, it's going to knock over and kill somebody who's on the branch track, but only one person. So that's the setup of the trolley problem. And the answer is, the question is, do you pull the lever or don't you? Um, I, can I ask you that quickly? What would you do? Would you pull the lever and, and, and kill the, the one and save the five? Or would you let fate run its path? Yeah, I mean, I think that the usual answer to that is you, you balance death and you say one versus five, mm-hmm. and you make that judgment call as, as the lesser of the two evils. Yeah. Um, and I think, you know, I, I, that's definitely how I would choose. Yeah. But, but in the circumstance, you know, it might be very different if, depending right. on who those five people were. You know, if, right. if one were... Uh, if they were venture capitalists, five VCs and one amazing founder. Right. Or let's flip it around. Like if that one person were like a family member. Right. It would completely skew and bias me. Absolutely, absolutely. So, so what you've identified though there is is all the nuances within a within a trolley problem, and and you don't even get agreement within very homogenous groups of people. And then when you compare, say, the results that you get in the UK versus in China, it's all over the place. So, so, so if I bring it back to the, the question, question, yeah, there is a decision point there. Yeah, but that decision point is when there's a conscious decision point mm-hmm. that is that there's a human judgment that makes that decision, whether it's a good judgment or bad judgment. Mm-hmm. But as technology and the rate of technology advances, sometimes we can find ourselves sleepwalking into one of those two outcomes just right. because that's the way that technology is developing. And I'm curious to hear where you think we've already sleepwalked into certain things because of the way that data is being connected yeah, and the way absolutely. that algorithms are being developed. Yeah, so so 
that there's a the good example there is um we've had it for a long time is credit scoring for personal finance and and yeah the credit credit scoring is is handled by three or four uh, uh, large companies and they make judgments on whether you're eligible, what, what your, you know, your loan default rate is. And there are all sorts of questions about how good that data is and so on. But within that, that's an automated system that replaces the human judgment, uh, that a loan officer used to have, you know, 40, 30 or 40 years ago. Uh, and, and, and it, for me, it raises the, all of the issues of trolley problems because essentially the trolley problem here is kind of risk of loss to the, to the bank and, shortcuts that, that will necessarily be made in making that judgment. And it's a great example where I say, well, you've got algorithms here, in this case, quite simplistic algorithms that, that manage my access to resources and I have no, no recourse. So that's, that's one, one example. Um, there are, there are other examples which come, will come in now into, uh, you know, whether you get ESTA clearance going into the US, uh, because those are going to be made on you know whatever quality of data people have and whatever simple rules uh, are in are in place and um, and they're going to become increasingly the case as uh, i mean the, you know another example of a, of a trolley problem uh, is what kind of information do we see on our social networks because what the algorithm the maths is doing is it's weighing up between two choices it's not one person versus five people here it's weighing up giving you good quality diverse news versus giving you what you already want to hear that will then encourage you to come back to the platform a day later so they're coming they're sneaking in and i think the challenge that we 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 have is that first of all there's no most importantly there's no Rarely is there any good human agreement about what the right outcome is. I mean, if you ask the trolley problem question time and again, on average in, in the West, 70% of people will say, let's be utilitarian. Um, if you change that from being a, a people being killed into damage to property and you go to China, only 30% of people say, let's have less damage to property. Most will say let fate, fate run its path. If the, if the train was going to go down the, the, the big damage route, let it go down there. So these are hard questions which we don't have easy answers to already. And then when you wrap that into teams who consider themselves engineering teams, not ethics teams, who are forced then to deliver, because of the reality of life, to deadlines and prioritize things, You'll, let, you'll often find yourself sleepwalking into little choices that maybe we don't feel comfortable with in aggregate. And how are those choices at the moment affecting the way that people are going to be employed in the next two, three years? Are we, I know we talked a little bit about deliveries and the Ubers, but I'm more, more keen on understanding the nature of employment three, four years from now and what skills you know, maybe uh, people need to be developing if they're not going to be starting you know, companies that are generating the, the AI itself? Yeah, well, that's a really, that's a good question because, uh, you know, we, we have seen, uh, you know, we've seen in general a, a shift towards, uh, towards the efficiency of companies. Uh, and so today it takes about six people in the US to generate a million dollars of, of output of stuff. 30 years ago, it took 25 people to generate that same million dollars. And that's productivity enhancement. So where do they, where do those other jobs go? And, you know, they've gone to being, you know, massage therapists and delivery people and, and, you know, nail, nail, nail people and, and so on. Um, as we, 
as we move forward, where do those jobs come from? Now, I think there will be for a certain period of time, that three to four year time horizon that you talked about, um, there will still be lots of jobs. So let's just stick to that three to four year period. Um, so there's going to be lots of companies that are using AI. They're going to be building AI systems. They're going to be, there's going to be a, an explosion actually in 2017 of applica- a- applied apps using AI systems. There's still a need for um, kind of human interaction. I quite like this, this emerging job, the, uh, you know, the AI trainer was one example. Um, the, the tiny rise from a very low base of the number of English majors being hired by bot companies <laughs> to write bot scripts, uh, which is, which is not, which is not great. Um, uh, but in general, you know, you'd feel that, that the emphasis will remain on the, the kind of STEM style, STEM style jobs. Although I think I'm, I'm trying to make an argument that you do need people with backgrounds in history and critical thinking and design uh, in these products because fundamentally we're not building software for, for software's sake. We're building software that functions as part of a human system. So I would like to see more of those people being employed in companies because I think they'll design better products, right? So it's not sufficient to begin and end with STEM. Mm. Did I answer your question there or did I did I miss it? I'm, well, I'm wondering no, you, if I missed you, a bit of I it. I think you answered it from the, from, from the percentage of you of, of a certain type of worker. Mm-hmm. And I think that that kind of worker, um, as you as you alluded to, will have a shift in the kind of things that they will study mm-hmm. and the kinds of ways that they will add value to a company Yeah. Uh, in addition to engineering type labor. Yeah. I, my question was more specific to a sort of what the industrial revolution did mm-hmm. to a certain kind of um, family and a certain kind of uh, city that has now been vacated as jobs have moved abroad and mm-hmm. therefore they're they're in in some part uh, the victims of that mm-hmm. evolution and I'm wondering what the who the victims of the AI um, and automation uh, revolution will be and mm-hmm. what will be their role uh, okay well that's a really that's a great question and and most of what I've read about this has is pretty <laughs> It's quite pessimistic uh, in, in that sense, right? So there's one view which says, well, this kind of hollowing out continues because the way capital moves around, it will constantly find more and more efficient ways to get to get the job done. So it was offshoring jobs. Now you're starting to see uh, in China uh, factories being replaced by robots. Uh, and so where do those where do those people end up going? Um, and and then the the slightly optimistic view is that. This has always happened, right? This happened when we, um, you know, when we introduced the plow 10,000 years ago, we, and we started to domesticate wheat and domesticate animals, we increased our agricultural productivity. So we didn't, we started to generate surplus. Now you could argue, well, when we, as a band of 60 people, we only needed 20 of us to, to find to, to get to gather the food, what would the other 40 do? Well, what ended up happening was we created surplus. And so the other 40 started to organize and they started to say, well, let's store our surplus. And they built grain stores and then grain stores needed scribes to, and, and scribes needed mathematics and writing in order to account for the amount of excess, excess grain. And then that process of organization needed a formal leader to, to sort of manage it. And then these communities got larger and larger and you know, here we are today. So we've got a really long historical precedent that says that as you improve productivity, 
uh, in general, you construct new types of new types of jobs, yeah. and so the myth is that that there are things that AI will never be able to do. AI will never be able to make handmade, human-produced artisanal cheese mm-hmm. because, by definition, it's got to be made by a human. So there are realms which will always be safe uh, from from AI. I don't know if there's enough demand for artisanal cheese, right? Globally, yeah. um, but that argument has to sit alongside the kind of more pragmatic question that you talk about, which is what actually happens to those communities. So what happens when you've got a community of um, a, a community of 100,000 people where unemployment rates hit 40, 50, 60, 70% because there's no, there's no role for them. And I think that's a really interesting, uh, interesting question. Sh- sh- should yeah. I push on, push yeah. on at this point? Oh, yeah, because oh, yes. I mean, it's, you know, it's one of the criticisms of globalization, right? It's one of the criticisms and in, 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 in this case, it'll be technological globalization. Yeah, that's pretty potent brew. So if we, if we think about, um, what has happened in communities, I think this is useful, um, uh, so as social scientists, you know, they're not normally able to run experiments, but we do have an example in the UK where uh, we hollowed out a, uh, uh, a bunch of areas. So we had a strong coal industry for, for many years. Um, and by the 19, late 1970s, 1980s, there were about 250,000 people employed in the coal industry in the UK. And in a very short period of time, we took that number down essentially to zero. And, and coal was a very co- concentrated industry. Uh, there were entire towns that were dependent on coal mining. All the men went out to work in the coal mines and the, and, and the women in general weren't working at that time. And in a very short period of time under Margaret Thatcher's rule, we shut that industry down or, or you know, eviscerated it. And we did so without probably the strongest of adjustment policies and social nets and retraining and investment. I mean, there was a little, but not really much. Now, this was 30 years ago. And 30 years on, the health outcomes in those communities, which were hollowed out when coal went away, are about twice as bad as those in the uh, the southeast of England, which didn't really have a coal industry. So we can lo- go back to that social science experiment and say, this is what happens when you rip a community out very quickly without putting in social nets. So we should take that forward uh, as we start to think about this kind of technological unemployment. And most, I think, again, a lot of what I've read says that we don't have a problem in producing excess. Right? We can produce more than people need. We already produce you know, 2,800 calories per person per day in the planet, right? So nobody need ever go hungry from that perspective. The, the challenge is the redistribution. And it's reasonably, seems to be a reasonably strong idea that we're going to have to figure out how to redistribute these excess gains that we're going to produce by the combination of technology and efficiency and and productivity and frankly all the new areas that AI is going to open up for us. We will need to find some way to do some uh, redistribution and I think the second thing that we'll probably end up having to do is decoupling income and reward from the act of work Uh, uh, and that's quite a challenge because we've built our societies over thousands of years on this idea that if you work hard, you get more rewards and you rise higher up the pyramid. Ironically, I think the Star Trek universe, uh, they make their earnings that way. They're decoupling in, in the future Star Trek universe income from rewards. So maybe that's the utopia that we're working towards. 
Well, you, you know, the, the that may be a utopia. Uh, I just I think the 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 underlying trends say we're going to continue. You know, short of something horrible like an asteroid happening, we're going to continue to produce much, much more than we need, and we're going to get more and more efficient. Uh, you know, per month, per the number of engineers that Instagram needs to support a million monthly active users is ten times lower than that of Facebook. So Facebook needs ten times as many engineers to support a million active users, and Google needs ten times more than Facebook. And those are three of the most phenomenal products in the world. And 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 we're seeing that ten xing every five or six years in efficiency. It's not clear to me that that's going to stop. So we're going to become more and more efficient. We're going to get the zero man unicorn, right? Seed Camp twenty twenty seven might be investing seven percent to a DAO run by an AI, right, with no humans involved. Uh, and, and so we're not going to have a problem in producing excess. The question is, can we get it around to people in in reasonable ways? And and you know, how do you get to the Star Trek universe that you've talked about? Uh, because it could be really, really horrible in the meantime. And when we say horrible, we mean, uh, you know, violent and, and, and nasty. So the alternative to this Star Trek universe, which which is, is great, barring the fashion, is more of a Elysium-style universe, yeah. where the rich kind of evaporate off into a, you know, beautiful bubble that floats above the earth and it's yoga and meditation and, 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 and so on and, and froyo and, and the rest of us kind of scrabble around. Um, and, and so that's one kind of future. I mean, Yuval Harari, who's a fantastic historian, um, talks about sort of the kind of these, these sort of new super gods and a class of useless people. And, and so if you don't fix the inequality question and the distribution question, perhaps what you get is this kind of power law distribution, which looks a lot like that movie Elysium. Most of us don't have medical care. We scrabble around in a kind of Hobbesian, nasty, brutish and short world. And a handful of us live kind of wonderful lives, a wonderful life on a space cruise ship. Mm. So if I were to ask you then to predict in the same way that you use the metaphor mm -hmm. uh, of the scribe and the harvesting technology. So mm -hmm. if, if harvesting technology enabled all these people to become now available mm -hmm. for some other job and then the scribe, and you were to ask that harvester, what, what jobs are going to come up? And maybe they would have said, you know, somebody to account for all this stuff mm -hmm. in similar vein, what things, and, and I'm going to give you a few just so maybe yeah, kick yeah. it off. Uh, what are the things that you expect will be those scribes, if you will, of the future in the next four or five years for either that dystopian future or that utopian future, but just those roles? What will they be and what will they do? So the first one that you we had discussed about uh, was this sort of any kind of uh, technology or role having to do with the redistribution of calories. So anything mm -hmm. having to do with how to take that excess generation and move mm -hmm. it around. Um, the next one might be some sort of political political science type role that is that decoupler of income and rewards. Another one could be how to best generate the the mobile uh, experience, but via voice. So how mm -hmm. to how to voice acting, how mm -hmm. to have all this sort of humanization mm -hmm. of artificial intelligence as a career, as a as a right. as a way of interfacing. So those are just three ideas mm -hmm. for you to banter off of. Yeah. Maybe you can give me more or sort of yeah. what you predict. So, uh, well, let's let's push out the timeline. So, you know, let's, you know, kind of look 15, 20 years ra rather than, 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 you know, sort of shorter in. And the, the machines and the AI systems will still need people for 
for, for, for quite a bit of time. And what we are starting to see is the degree of specialization that you now need to have if you're working in the AI fields today. You know, they're just um, the amount of innovation that's going on in the AI sector and, and kind of fundamental research is pretty significant. So you can imagine that there's still going to be a demand for an increasing number. And I, I would love to run the numbers on this, right? How many people have got PhDs in AI or data science or machine learning now compared to 20 years ago? And we, you know, we'll have a Thomas Watson moment. We would have thought there was only a need for 500 and there would be 50,000 of them. So that would be, that would be uh, you know, one area that's important. I think a second area that's important will be in things to do with teaching and metacognition uh, because the rate of change is going to increase. And so people are going to need to know how to deal with that rate of change. And, and probably people are the best way of teaching other people about, about that. Uh, and, and then there will be things that relate to, um, uh, uh, to, 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 I think, the psychological effects of change. So not just to the enabling capabilities, but the awareness of, um, you know, what, how, do I, how do I manage and maintain myself? I mean, I have this exponential graph, which is showing the number of research publications to do with mindfulness. Uh, and that's growing exponentially because actually the market is saying... Hmm, people are wondering about this quite a lot, right? They're wondering about their awareness. They're wondering about who they are. They're wondering about how do you turn down the noise. Uh, so I don't <laughs> yoga and meditation is a good thing to be in, but I would expect I would expect that to um, increase over the longer term. You know, as as prediction becomes free, as uh, as prediction becomes free, and as lots of tasks become automated, where do we where do we go? Um, where we go that we're not yet willing to trust machines is questions that relate to agency. And so things like judgment. So I would expect that we would start to want to own, explicitly own the judgment component because my Excel is now smart enough to do high level analysis on my financials. I now want to make the decision and we want to do that because we, you know, there'll be lots of reasons, but one of them will be legal liability. The other will be, you know, duty of care and so on to finally say that I, as a human, signed off this decision. Even if 99 times out of 100 or 999 times out of 1,000, I do what the machine did, uh, we'll still ascribe some more power to an augmented human who used the technology to get there but finally made the decision for themselves. And, and then the question that we ask is, are there enough jobs like that around in a planet of seven and a half billion people. And that, that's often the difficult question. Yeah. And there's there's another angle that I'll throw into that. This is more of an anecdote from a conversation I had with a doctor who gave a TED Talk one time uh, about four years ago. And he was sharing in his TED Talk that he sees the rise of technology-assisted doctors as actually a problem because they become medical technicians, to use his word, mm -hmm. and rather than medical practitioners. So right. the thing is that he basically started giving examples of where he, for example, could smell mm -hmm. whether somebody had a specific illness just from the smell of your urine. And he said that anybody who's a medical technician wouldn't lack that capability of putting two, right. two together because they're just following a script. And I think one of the challenges that I think what we'll start seeing is, yes, we'll have enabled AI-enabled humans, but they will lack that link between multiple elements from mm -hmm. experiential things mm -hmm. to actually have good judgment. So we might right. actually expect this to happen, but the output will be more like a self-referential idiocracy right. uh, rather than some sort of larger experiential conclusion. Well, and, and look, look at how doctors get trained, right? So a doctor gets trained by 
over a very, very long period of time by being a junior and then being more senior. Yeah. And then eventually you be allow, are allowed to fly without company. If you, if as a senior doctor, you start using medical technology and you don't have your juniors, that, that might be great. And the suturing uh, robot may be a better, better at applying sutures than, than a sort of a junior, junior doctor. But you're not going to have any senior doctors in 20 years or 15 years. So it's a really big, big bet. And, and there seems to be like, you know, everyone's, you know, down on neoliberalism at the moment. But there seems to be this kind of um, trade off that we're identifying between scale and growth and and mastery and presence that you you the more you have scale and growth, which is all of these efficiencies, let's learn surgery on iPads and, and so on, the less you have presence and and mastery uh, and at some point you might need that and you may not just be able to find people with those attributes yeah well hopefully that will not happen and we'll have the utopian future we all wish for mm. thanks for joining us Azim it's uh, amazing to have you here and we could probably carry on the conversation for more hours mm -hmm. uh, but for those of you that aren't subscribed to, to Azim's newsletter please do so it is an amazing newsletter and thanks for joining us Thank you very much, Carlos. Really appreciate it.